My name is Luke. I know there's a few of you I've not met yet. I'm one of the pastors here at Legacy. I'm super excited to preach today. It's a fun passage for me to preach. Um, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Ephesians 5. We're continuing through a series that we've been working through in the spring and in the summer. This passage has especially been helpful for me over the last 20 years. I'm hoping that it's going to be helpful for you. We're in Ephesians 5. This is Paul talking to a very young, very small church plant that he had a very heavy hand in helping establish. And this is what he says to the church of, of Ephesus. He says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, verse 7 says, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For if anything that becomes visible is light... Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Verse 15. Look carefully, then, how you will walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit." addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay, as I said, this passage has been helpful for me as regards becoming a missionary to the world around us. If you were here last week, you probably caught on a little bit that Paul is continuing a very similar thread of thought. He is probably in the same breath that he was when he spoke what we looked at last week. I mean, we're, we're a whole week away, but this is really part and parcel with what we looked at last week where Paul was saying, you shouldn't walk like the Gentiles walk. They lived a certain way, just like you did when you were one of them, but now... You have had things taken off of you. You've been renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And now the, the righteousness of Christ has been put on you. So now you should look a little different. You should be a distinctive people. And we see him saying the same thing, but using light and darkness as the illustration for us today. I think this idea and this thought is getting some serious airtime because this church, and we don't really quite know exactly how old this church is or exactly how big it is. Most scholars believe that it would be smaller than our church. And, and listen, our church is small right now because we're in the dead of summer, right? But even at our smallest as a church, this church was likely the same size or smaller. And it was younger as well. And still, with, with as old as it is, 
as young as it is and as small as it is, there are already chunks of the church that are returning back to the world that they were ripped out of by the grace of Christ and they're repartnering with things that they were pulled away from. They're repartnering. They're becoming one. They're returning to the image of the world. They're being conformed to those things. It kind of reminds me of the teaching that Jesus um, was so good to give us in the Gospels as he talks about one who kind of indiscriminately sows seed and seeds dropping on different kinds of soil. Some of it not really soil at all. Some of it soil it's giving a lot of crop and a lot of fruit too. But, but one always grabs my attention and it is the seed that falls on soil that has a lot of thorns. And as the plant grows, it's constrained. It doesn't grow like it should because the thorns are choking it out. And then after a while, it's hard to distinguish what is thorn and what is plant. Jesus goes on later to say, those thorns, they're the cares of the world. The riches and it's the deceitfulness of it. All the things that the world says is valuable. All the things that the world gets caught up in. It's easy for us as we grow as Christians to get entangled, to get choked down and constrained, and to start looking a lot like it. And we all know people like that, right? You know people like that. Entangled. Some of you might be people like that, right? Some of us might be here. I might be like that. I mean, it's easy to grow and to get entangled in the cares of the world and the things that the world says this is valuable. So what we see here maybe is a difference between last week and this week is a subtle shift. Paul is saying in addition to being distinctive from the world that you came from and in addition to being fruitful He's answering the question, how do we interface with a world that is still in the dark? How do we do that? How do we engage a world that is still given to dark things in the darkness? And so for that, I'm just going to focus on one little piece of that, because you could tell we read a, a large body of work right there, just to get a good context of what's going on. But I really just want to focus on, on one little part, and that's going to be starting in verse 7. I'm going to read it again to you. Therefore, Paul says, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you were light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, right? I think you'll be interested in what Paul is doing right here. If you, like others, especially the Ephesians, find yourself surrounded by a culture that you were ripped out of, surrounded by, I guess, darkness in your normal day, and yet you feel the awkwardness, maybe the pinch, really the awkwardness and the tension of being on mission to that same darkness that you used to be in, because missions can be hard, right? I mean, I'll say something that I say a lot, especially in classes, but we are designed to be missionaries. There's no such thing as a Christian who is not a missionary. We are designed by God, handcrafted, to be missionaries in our very specific and unique spheres. I, I, and I think that word sphere is the most helpful for me. A lot of times it's the most helpful for others. We all have various spheres. Some of you, you have a lot more than others, but these are areas and puddles and rhythms where you have influence, where you have repetitive relationships. Um, we are parents. We are uh, artists. We're employees. We're neighbors. We're academics. So in other words, there's no such thing as just you being a stay-at-home mom. I am a stay-at-home mom. You're actually a mom on mission. That's a unique sphere. It's your sphere. 
You're not just an employee. You are someone who works, but you're also on mission. You're an employee who is on mission. That is your sphere. And in these spheres, we're actually designed to look like Jesus and to sound like Jesus and to glorify Jesus. And friends, this means calling dark things dark. It's part of it. It's calling darkness dark, but that's wildly unpopular. To take what is dark and unmask it for what it is, to unveil it for what it really is, is wildly, wildly unpopular. It's not only unpopular, to call something dark in our climate today is to be hateful and hurtful and rude. It's considered a microaggression, right? Which, and I know that word's getting a lot of play right now, microaggression, micro-invalidation, micro-insult. Microaggression's a 50-year-old term. All it means is that you communicate things, whether you say it um, or whether you use your body language that could be hostile or derogatory to a target group that also happens to be a marginalized group or has a marginalized status, whether you mean to or not. And I'm not saying that there's no such thing as a microaggression. We all communicate more than we think we communicate, right? Some of us, were just mean, and we're hateful, and we know that we're hateful when we do it, when it comes to a marginalized group. And sometimes we do and say things we don't even mean to, to say what we're saying. Maybe it's the way we were brought up. Maybe it's just the way that we've always known normal to be. I'm not saying there's no such thing as a microaggression, because I think they exist. But I think it's only now, in our culture now, that things like public prayer and evangelism are construed as a microaggression. A microaggression. People are suing other people for praying in public because they felt it was aggressive against them as a non-believer. If you were downtown yesterday during the Pride event, the Pride parade on Gay Street, you could have shown up, you could have held a sign, you could have just walked up to somebody, but had you said, God is better than sex, and God is better than identity that you were building. God is better than all of this. If that is all that came out of your mouth, it would have had to have been on the other side of a barricade because that would have been perceived as aggressive. Right? I mean, let's look at John because Jesus actually speaks straight to this. Microaggressions, macroaggressions, microinvalidations. We invent words all the time for stuff that Jesus already was well aware was going to come our way as little Christs or missionaries. So look at um, John 17 up on the screen. You can flip there if you're fast, but I'm just going to jump in at verse 14. This is Christ as he's praying to his Father, and he says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus is fully aware of how many people will perceive the gospel and gospel distinctiveness, and it will be with hatred. It'll be with hatred. It'll be with outrage. Straight up outrage. This is where, by the way, in this passage, this is where we get that super common phrase you hear, in but not of. We hear it thrown around. There's no Bible passage that says it just like that, that we are in the world but not of the world. This is the passage that that is pulled from, okay? I like it, except I feel like it's incomplete. I feel like it's a solid, incomplete statement. I think we are in the world, we are of the, or we're not of the world, but we are also for the world, we're not just called to be in and not dirtied by. We are called to be in, not constructed by or conformed to, but yet sent back into with the solid love that we see imaged in the gospel and how Christ came for us. Jesus did not come just to be different and separate. He came fully invested. 
His sleeves were rolled up. His hands were dirty. He was on our level in the streets with us at a great cost to himself when the people that he would bring love to would be macro-aggressive against him and, in fact, would put him up on a cross. I mean, think about it. Just the world that was around Jesus at that time. Jesus had spears, too. He was a missionary. He was sent, just, just like us. And he had spears. He was a son. He was a carpenter, right? He had friends. He came from a poor town. I mean, he, he was able to go where his feet could carry him, pretty much. He had uh, uh, some, some solid believers, some not-so-solid believers. He had his own spheres, and yet the masses around him would feel exposed and uncomfortable because he would call their deeds dark, and they would put him on a cross. This is a continual reality for missionaries today, by the way. It's a continual reality. So Paul, being a missionary himself, is speaking right at it. And he's speaking to a church full of those who are reluctantly sent, reluctantly sent. And maybe he's speaking to you at this time as well. Maybe you're reluctantly sent. You believe in God. I mean, you're here. That's not a small thing, right? <laughs> you're here. You're here. You believe in God. You believe in Jesus, right? You believe that grace comes by faith. You believe that the Bible is God's word to us. You believe that prayer works. You believe that church isn't stupid. You believe these things, right? But when it comes to words like experience God or enjoy Christ or being satisfied with God, those aren't realities so much. Those are a little less. Those are more hypothetical. Here's the tough news if that's true. If your heart has not found its deepest satisfaction in Jesus above all the things that the world can offer, all the thorns and the cares and the values of the world, if your heart has not found its deepest satisfaction in Jesus, then being an effective missionary is always going to be an uphill task for you. Always, always, always. And whenever you fail or even think that you are failing, waves of shame will come, telling you how bad you are at being a missionary. That's what we have in store if we're not just intoxicated by Christ. And I'm going to explain that in a minute. But I am convinced that the majority of the church finds itself on a mission it's not all that excited to be on. The majority. It's on a bus, it's going the right direction, just not super excited about the bus that it's on. Talking about a story with a hero in it, but that hero's not necessarily their hero. It's a beautiful story, it'll give you that, but it's not beautiful to them. It's just hypothetical. Maybe that's you again. I'm convinced that much of the church is informed, but not wrecked. Informed but not ruined by God. Informed, but not satisfied. You know, I use the word ruined a lot. I, I, I use it personally because whenever I became a Christian back in 1996 is a, a college student about to leave school. Whenever the gospel touched me, changed my everything, and the only way I knew to describe it to other people is that I was ruined. Right? I don't even think I heard that somewhere else. I think it was just a word that is the only thing I could think of that made sense. I was wrecked. Nothing was valuable to me that used to be valuable. I mean, all of my values changed. My strategies for getting at things had totally changed. The way I handled my mouth, the way I handled women, the way I looked at money, the way I looked at power, the way I looked at everything had not subtly changed, but radically changed. Radically. It was a radical transformation that God did to me in those days. In fact, I've told a story, I don't know if I've ever told it up here, but I've told it in pockets where my parents, because I grew up in the church, thought I was in a cult. It was such a radical transformation 
it was such a radical transformation, they thought I was in a cult. They thought that that's the only thing that could have such a power over a young man that quickly, that radically. But it was the gospel that had that much power over me, that radically. It's interesting, though. And God ruined my taste for all these things, and everything changed. I still had questions. I still had fears because I was a skeptic before I was a Christian. But one thing that had happened is my taste for the old life was ruined. Right? Now, one thing that I, I remember in that key little season at two or three years, because I was still finding myself around people that knew me in my old life. Now, that, that puddle of people is getting smaller because I'm getting older. Right? But the people that knew the old Luke, I would hear them describe me, sometimes to me. And I would hear words like extremist, radical, over-the-top, militant. I was led to believe that there were normal Christians and then unhinged Christians, right? Unbalanced ones that kind of needed to swing back towards moderation. Even well-meaning people in the church were hoping that I would be a little less militant and over the top and a little bit back more towards what was normal, which happened to be where they were at, but that I would be right with them. But I, I gotta be honest, I was ruined. Not going back. There's nothing there for me. The world had nothing to give me anymore. I didn't know what normal looked like. God satisfied me to the point that the world had nothing for me. Since that day in 1996, I've always been on mission. Every single sphere I've had, I've taken as a serious mission field. I'm flawed for sure, failed, I'm still growing a ton, but I'm not going back. Not going back. This is what I do know about mission, though. I can tell you one thing I know about being on mission. Gospel extension to your neighbor. When I say gospel extension, I'm not just talking about preaching the gospel, I'm also talking about living it. We preach it for certain, because when people hear it, it is by hearing that they're able to have faith, and that is where we see salvation happen, but we, do we not verify it with our lives? It's what we say and it is what we do. I don't know about divorcing those two things. I just call it all gospel extension, how we live, how we talk, right? Gospel extension to your neighbor is hard on a good day. On a good day. I'm talking days where you don't sound stupid and all of your words actually make sense, like coherent sentences are happening and they're looking at you and there's a little tear and they're listening and they're asking questions and in your mind you're thinking, this is it, this is it. I've been waiting for this moment. Even on those moments, it's hard. I mean, think about all the work you have to do as a good missionary, a ruined person. You have to listen to them, don't you? you got to know their story. What, what makes them up? How do they see God? Are they an addict? Were they beaten? Were they sexually abused? Were they, they come from a wealthy family? Do they even have a dad? I mean, all these things matter. you got to listen. But it's not just them you're listening to. You're listening to the Holy Spirit as well, aren't you? How do I do this? Brake pedal? Gas. What do I do right now? Do, do, I, do I talk more? Do I kind of give them some space? I mean, you have to be thoughtful. But you got to be intentional. you got to be courageous, but you got to be sensitive. It's hard. On a good day, it's hard. And this is if you're fascinated with Jesus. This is if you're fascinated with Jesus. But if enjoying Jesus and being satisfied with God is a hypothetical thing for you, then the gospel is always going to be a hard sales pitch because you don't really believe in what you're peddling. It hasn't touched your heart yet, and you're not satisfied. It's always going to be difficult then. So Paul, in his discussion... Here, the greater discussion of being different, being distinctive, being new, which means being ruined from ever going back. 
he adds another layer and he says this, rather than repartnering with that darkness, you should be exposing it. Did you catch that word in there? Exposing it? I caught it. Paul actually says it to another church as well. He says it to the church in Corinth. A little bit differently. In chapter 6, he says, For what partnership is righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? He's saying you can't partner with it. You're supposed to be exposing it. Let me explain why this is difficult today. In our current temperature, our current culture. It's, the difficulty is not just saying that you live differently. The problem is that whenever you take a moral stand on how you live, it will be perceived as hatred and an aggression by others. That's where it gets hard. That's where gospel confrontation is difficult. If you confront the darkness and you call dark things dark, it will be seen as unloving and aggressive in the eyes of a dark world. But I'll tell you right now, it's nothing short of the very image of Christ on earth for mankind whenever we walk like that. It is not your distinction and you being different that is evoking such fury and toxic anger from the world. It's you making a stand. It's you saying morally why you do what you do and why they could have more and why they're looking for something else in that broken idol and how God is better. At that point, you're speaking down, and it's aggressive. For instance, no one is angry with you if you're a vegetarian. I mean, they might kind of snicker inside. Probably not now. Now it's more normal, right? But no one's going to throw a tomato at you for being a vegetarian. No one's going to be mad at you. You're just different. That's just what makes you different. You're distinctive. Congratulations. Or if you homeschool your kids. No one's going to be furious with you if you homeschool your kids, right? But if you start a blog and you say how meat eaters are immoral, carnivores, they have no morality, that is upstanding, or, or if you say to send your kids to a public school is a form of child abuse, well, you're going to catch some flack for that. You're going to catch some flack. Likewise, when your car leaves the driveway on Sunday morning, you're just different. You're just distinctive. That's just what that makes you different from the people that aren't leaving their driveways on Sunday morning. If you spend your money in such a way that is given to church planting or campus ministry or caring for the poor and the marginalized, if you do that, you're just distinctive. It's what makes you different. But when you make moral stands and call dark things dark, when you say that God is better than whatever is failing that person, then the culture is going to feel exposed. And it will be outraged. This is what we see in John. John 3. The light has come into the world. And people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who practices wicked things hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. I get this. I hated the truth when I was practicing wicked things. When I was a wicked dude, I hated it because it told me a few things. It said I had to stop what I was doing, right? But then it also called me wicked. <laughs> it said I was wicked. Felt like that was rude. Felt like it was hateful. Felt like it was judging me for it to say something like that. Friends, listen, if you're the most popular missionary in Knoxville, I doubt you're the most effective one, right? Because the gospel is brilliant news. It's intoxicating. It's beautiful. And it also shines a pretty heavy light on darkness. It does both. And if we bring the gospel to a city that we love and we ignore the darkness because it could offend, the light seems a little irrelevant at that point. It doesn't make much sense. 
It's one of the worst things we could do as God sent people is make people think that their sin is small or light just because we're afraid of how they might handle us. But this is a grave and rampant danger that we have where our mission is kind of shaped and formed by our fear of man. And I understand it. We don't want to be categorized as bigots. We want to be labeled as hateful, aggressive. And so because of that, we won't point at dark living. We won't use words like repent. We won't say things like turn. We won't say things like wrong because that's where people get offended. Listen, we can't bring the gospel in a clear way if people that we love in the city only have small sins and minor impurities. We can't do it. can't do a good job. If wickedness becomes nothing more than just a minor imperfection that needs a little bit of cosmetic help, right? If we handle it that way, the gospel's been dropped. Dropped. If dark things done in dark places are nothing more than what we call coping mechanisms or lifestyle choices, then the gospel is dropped. Wicked has to be wicked. Dark is dark. You know, we, I had a Bible study this week with Dr. Clint and a few other people, and we looked at the second psalm, and we looked at it in detail. And we won't teach it here, but if you were to read the first three verses of the second psalm, it's interesting because it gives you this picture of the influencers of the world, the kings and national leaders, all basically saying, we want to do what we want to do, and we're going to throw off any restraint, and we're going to set ourselves up against God and do unspeakable things. And friends, listen, our culture will do that, and it will demand that you be okay with it, that you respect it even. It will demand that. And this is why Paul, to another church in Rome, heavily, heavily says that we cannot be conformed to the world. The world will want to press us into its mold, but we have been built into a different image. So I don't know about you, but at this point, it bears asking a question, an honest question that I think demands an answer. And that is just why use words at all? I mean, honestly, if that's what's causing all of the problems is us taking a stand and saying what is dark and what is light. If if that is what we're doing, then why don't we just do actions? Actions don't seem to tick anyone off. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you can go down to CARM and donate your time and your money and your talent, and no one's going to hate you for that. You can do that. You can go overseas, no one's going to hate you. There's all kinds of, you can bring a casserole dish to your neighbor who just went through a nasty divorce, and no one's going to throw a rock at you as you walk back to your house, right? No one's going to yell shame at you or anything like that. We can do actions, then why not just do that if words are so offensive? I'm being serious. If the world's just going to go bananas every time we confront darkness and call it aggressive, then wouldn't the loving thing just be to give them some space and let them figure it out? Or better yet, what if we just worked on being a good example? We're just here. Hey, we're here if you need us. Living it out. You got any questions, you can come talk to me. We actually have the answer to such a hard and real question in this passage. Look at the first two verses. Ephesians 5, 1 through 2. It'll be up on the screen. Therefore, Paul says, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us. Not another kind of love, but a Christ-shaped love, right? As he gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is an interesting kind of love that we see right here. Love is not just a mere sentimentality. (laughs) Right? Love is not just feeling sorry for somebody or, or really, 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 really super liking something and kind of nurturing that affection. That's not what it is. Love is defined as a sacrificial action. Love is actionable. 
It's actionable here. It's not just observable. Jesus didn't love by acting only and not confronting with his words. I mean, you've read the Gospels, or you should. Miracles were happening a lot, but they somehow were always attached to words, right? He didn't mime his way through the Gospels. He used words. They were confrontational. They got him killed. We have that. He didn't come and create enough distance between him and the offended people so they wouldn't be so offended. There was a bold confrontation for their good at his cost even. And here's a newsflash. Jesus, being the best missionary who ever lived, the masses thought he was being aggressive and judgmental and hard with his assessment. I mean, consider that. Even the greatest missionary in the world could not escape the toxic response of the world. Paul, probably the second best missionary in the history of the world, could not escape the toxic hatred that came from the world. Let that tell you something, that when you are doing the best you can to live and to speak, to extend the gospel, and you get rage in return, you are not failing. You're not failing. Just because they're not radically falling to their knees right now does not mean that that you are failing. You've got to hear that. Another thing that stands out in this one little passage that I think is going to be helpful for us here in a moment is that love is not just actionable, but we see it as a sacrifice and an offering, and both are satisfying to God. We see offering and sacrifice. So notice that Jesus' action was for us, but it was to God. That's the direction. Right, outward and then upward. So we see that Jesus did something beautiful, it was for us, and it was to God, and when we love those around us, it will be, yes, for their good, and yes, for God's glory, and yes, it will be at our cost as well, right, at our cost. You see, this is pushing back and pointing back to the Old Testament, this little piece right here, and it's, you could almost miss it. But in the Old Testament, what would happen is is when someone wanted their sins taken away and they wanted to be closer to God, they would bring an animal to a high priest. It's just the way things happen. You had a goat, I don't know, an ox, a favorite puppy. We'll just pretend you can take puppies, right? Whatever it is, whatever, whatever animal you would take to the high priest, they would take that animal and they would break it. They would kill the animal. Now, they would burn some of it and it would smell like you'd think it would smell, like a really good barbecue, right? Maybe fragrance. It would have a fragrance to it. So they would burn some of the animal, and it would be a fragrance to God, and that would be an act of worship. But it was also an act of sacrifice as well, because what the high priest would do in killing that animal would cleanse his own sins and the sins of the people that brought the animal. Okay? Because if you remember from last week, and we looked at a little bit more detail last week, if you weren't here, you can always go back and listen. But last week we looked at the idea, the doctrinal idea of propitiation, where in order for justice to be satisfied, wrath would have to be emptied in its fullness, right? There would have to be that satisfaction made in order for justice to occur. But in the idea of the animal being broken by the high priest, the animal is the stand-in. The people are now acceptable, not because they were broken and bled out, but because the animal stood in between, right? So we see an offering, a fragrant offering, and we see a sacrifice that removes sin, and God is satisfied with both. Now, the whole reason that's in the Old Testament, because if you're not familiar with that, it might seem weird. You might read about that whole system of sacrifices and thinking, man, that's just, come on now, that's weird. You know what I'm saying? There's got to be a better way than like killing animals and blood everywhere and smoke and only one guy can do it. I mean, there's got to be a better way to do this whole thing with God. It sounds weird, but the whole thing is hearkening, is pointing forward to one who will come 
who will be the last high priest and the last sacrifice. And we're talking about a high priest who didn't have any sin in his life. There was nothing to cover. But he still provided himself as the perfect sacrifice to be broken. For what? For us. For why? To be a beautiful offering to God and a worship to God upward and then outward for us to remove sins. That whole stuff in the Old Testament, that's about Jesus. And Paul touches it right here just to kind of connect the dots for us. Just to connect the dots. So, what does this mean for us? It means we have no more intermediaries, no more priests between us and God. No more stand-in-betweens, no more acts, no more works of service, no more performance evaluations. It all ended in that one fragrant maneuver when our last high priest offered himself up as a perfect last sacrifice. And in that moment, we were brought from darkness to light and made a distinctive people. And if you're wondering where I get that, by the way, and maybe you're new to the Bible, the book of Hebrews is like the ultimate decoder ring if you're trying to figure out the Old Testament. So what I did is we're going to put up um, just a small piece of that just so you can see that I did not get this out of my imagination. The author of Hebrews told me what to say just then. He says this in chapter 7, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. That's obvious. What he's saying is, is, hey, listen, there's a bunch of priests because they keep dying. We have to keep making new ones. He says, but Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He has no need, like the high priest, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. He tied it all up with a bow. It goes on to say, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. So now he's switching gears. It's no longer talking about a priest, but a sacrifice. Thus securing an eternal redemption, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus is incredibly helpful here. He's incredibly helpful because not only do we have a model in how we're supposed to love people around us, sacrificially, as an offering, sacrifice to us for their good, at our cost, for his glory. Not only do we have a model, we're actually free to do it. He gives us a freedom to do this now. We're free. We're free to be missionaries, even miserable ones. You are free to totally fail at missions. You could leave here, and if you love Jesus as a Christian, never tell anyone about Christ, ever. Take it to your grave. And if God loves you, and you are a child of God, his approval of you does not move one degree. If you're the best missionary in the world, he doesn't love you any more than he did the day before. You could fail. Here's here's the beautiful part. In the same breath, you are free to succeed as well. You're free to succeed free to love others at your own cost, free to confront darkness when you know you're going to get a toxic jab in return, free to love others when no one knows how hard it's been for you to love that person, not even the person that you're loving. You're free to do it anyway. You're free to disappear into the background, free to be a footnote, free to be labeled as an aggressor, a microaggressor, macroaggressor, you're free to be labeled. You're free to be downtown, get spit on, and know that what you're doing is loving, You're free to prefer others over yourself. You're free to come in last place 
at a great cost to you for their benefit and for God's glory. And why are you free? Because everything that you were afraid of losing, God has already given you. The world has nothing to offer you. The world has absolutely nothing to offer you. Nothing. Nothing. So to be a better missionary to this place that we used to call home, to be a better one, the answer is not more education, a better book, a conference, a clinic, a cohort, a coach. It's none of those things. It's not more muscle or brilliance or power, discipline. It's faith that God in Christ is beautiful above all that the world might offer you. Beautiful than anything that is a care of the world or a value of the world. More majestic than anything that you used to have access to. That's the answer. The answer is a wild-eyed gaze towards God. An unhinged one. An unbalanced gaze towards a brilliant Jesus. A majestic one. That's the answer. It's being ruined. It's being ruined past just being around people who have been touched by God, but being touched yourself. It's being wrecked. Where you used to kind of maybe hear about the things of God and kind of orbit the things of God, and now you were arrested by God. I, I immediately think of Job in this. Job, towards the very end of his life, at the very end of the book, he says this very unique phrase. He says, speaking to God, I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. What is he saying? I've been apprehended. I'm ruined. I'm wrecked. Captured. Friends, hear me. Your life on this planet, it was not meant to be empowered by some hypothetical love, but by a very real one, where you were ruined for anything other than God himself. If you find yourself here today, and you are less than enamored with God, you are not ruined, you're not wrecked. You're drawing air. I mean, you're here, right? You're functioning, you think, but you're not ruined. I've got some encouragement for you. One is it's normal. You're a creature, finite, and you're a broken creature because of the sin in the garden. So you deplete over time. You leak over time. Your affections for the Lord, right? Your excitement, your encouragement, those things start to wane. God actually designed you to always carry a needy posture, a, needy, a neediness, an ability to come in and just say, I need, I don't have, but I know you do, please give. That's how we're created. So whenever we walk, we don't walk as full people. We deplete over time. It's important that you know that. Another thing that's important for you to know is that this vibrant living that we're talking about, where you are satisfied in a God that is satisfied in you, that requires the Holy Spirit's fullness. That's not something you're going to muster up on your own. That's going to take God himself in you, empowering that very thing. You know, there's this crazy passage I don't think is preached on enough. In Exodus 31, this is a side note. I'm going to blow through it. But right here, this is God speaking, and he says this. He says, and I have filled him, he's talking about an artist, an artisan. I have filled him with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze and cutting stones for setting and in carving wood to work in every craft. Now, this was to build a tabernacle, to build a tabernacle. And God is saying, listen, it needs to be good. I don't, I mean, it's going to be really nice artwork, so I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. 
so that it can be nice for intelligence and skill and craft to come out. This was to build the tabernacle. What do you think God does for those who are comprising the church? Right? That's why we see in the Gospels where Christ himself is saying, listen, you who are bad parents or good parents, just normal parents, don't you want to give good things to your kids? Of course we do. How much more God give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Here is my number one and only application for a passage like this. If you find yourself less enamored with God, less in faith that he is beautiful above all things, my singular application is that you ask him for more. Super complicated. Ask to be ruined. It sounds like this. Lord, I need and I don't have. And what I need, you do have. And I can't get it from anywhere else intoxicate me for you, fascinate me, draw me in, ruin me. That was my prayer in 1996. Wreck me for everything else. Ruin me. I don't ever want to go back. I don't ever want to go back. This is that thin place where the hypothetical just evaporates and becomes very real. We join the ranks of people like Job where we just stop hearing about it and we see it and it arrests us. So today... You know, as we, we're about to sing here in just a moment, and we'll have the opportunity to take the elements in the back. We have bread, we have juice, and all that is is a portrait. It's the table where we share a meal with Christ as he breaks himself and gives himself. That's something that we do in remembrance of this beautiful thing called the gospel. As we hope and can't wait to get to that place where we dine with him again at a banqueting table with a better bread and a better wine where we get to party with him. It, that, that is what, as you are doing that, as you are praying and meditating, it's also a time for repentance, for partnering, repartnering with what we've been ripped from in the darkness. And it's also a time to ask. It's a time to ask that our relationship be more than hypothetical. I mean, I just don't want to talk really and teach classes and sermons on what it means to be a great missionary and give all these technical things that might help you sound smoother or have more style points as you talk to people about Jesus if you don't have a ruined heart. That it won't make any sense. It's only ruined people that make good missionaries where we're confrontational at the right times, thoughtful all the time, loving all the time, courageous always. And we're able to do that because we're already satisfied and there's just nothing to lose. Nothing to lose. The world's got nothing to give. So ask yourself in those moments, who is in your various spheres that are still living in dark places? I actually went through this exercise this morning, just like you. Who are the people in my spheres that are still living in dark places, right? They're trying to wrench life from broken idols that keep promising but don't deliver. How has my gospel extension been to these people? Who is it? And am I truly satisfied with the God who is satisfied? Go ahead and stand with me. We need to get out of this. I've spent too long already. Go ahead and stand with me, and I'm going to read this passage over you. It's just one verse, really, as you stand. This is, this is the Old Testament, but it is actually remixed in the book of Luke in the first chapter. Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high, that's capital D, it's the person of Jesus, Dawn is personified as Jesus. The dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness in the shadow of death 
to guide our feet into the way of peace. Listen, if you're here and you are far from Christ, okay, far from Christ in the fact that you know that you don't love, maybe you're a skeptic like I was, maybe you're a searcher, you're just trying to kick over stones, trying to figure out what is right for you, trying to discover more about Jesus, but if this is you, hear this passage right here. Dawn, in the person of Jesus, is God's compassion and mercy towards you. He has come as a high priest, and he has come as the offering, all at the same time. And both those acts were satisfying to God because you never can be satisfying to God. In fact, the only satisfaction that you will ever find in God's eyes is because you wear the cloak of Christ. But you were buried in him. The only application I have for you, if that is you, is to ask the same exact questions that we've already asked. God, I need and I don't have. But what I need, you do have. And I can't get it from anywhere else. It's the cry of a broken heart, a dependent heart. So let me pray for you. Pray for all of you. Father, we thank you. And as we go from one moment of worship into another moment of worship, as we meditate on song and meditate on the elements in the back, communion, as we meditate on our friend next to us, as we meditate on, on how we give of our money and our time and our our talents, as we meditate on all of this, let us not lose the fact that the only way for us to function in a healthy way is to be fixed on you. And Lord, I, I, I leak and I deplete too and I keep finding myself coming back. I wander. So I come back and I say, restore my soul, just like David. So many Psalms, Lord, where the psalmist says to you, restore my soul, restore me back, bring me back. And that, Lord, I know because I leak. I go from being fixed on you to being a little less fixed on you. I go from being totally a radical to being a little less radical. And when that happens, I have nothing left but a darkness to draw me and entice me. So Lord, I, I just ask that you would call our hearts back to you. Call our hearts back to you. And we just ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to take us, to capture us, to arrest us, to win our hearts to make us new, to make us distinct, to make us radical, to make us militant, to make us unhinged, to make us unbalanced. Lord, for the good of this city, at our cost, and for your glory, we love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.